Lord, thanks for the uh, bright day ahead when we spend eternity with you. And as we're in John this morning, Lord, I ask that you'd uh, be bringing to our minds and thoughts the things that you want each one of us to see and to hear and to understand more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I have absolutely nothing in common with the theater or with uh, uh, movies other than enjoying watching them, you know. But one of the, one of the terms that uh, describes something related to theater and movies is upstaging, to upstage someone. You know, an upstaging is when a minor or peripheral role is played with such panache or over the top that the minor or supporting role ends up distracting from the primary or main character. Uh, a guy named Johnny Depp has been accused of this in the last couple of years for his roles in at least a few movies. And again, it's where this supporting role basically goes outside their boundaries to draw attention to themselves. And it's kind of at the expense of the main character. Uh, you may have gone to movies, or excuse me, uh, weddings sometimes where the, the cute little ring bearer or the little flower girl may be so cute that the bride and the groom are kind of lost in the shuffle, you know. But <clears throat> the thing with supporting roles is that by definition they're supposed to be supportive of a main character. They're not supposed to draw undue attention towards themselves. And this morning we're going to read about a significant figure who had a supporting role. And we'll see basically how he lives and, uh, and succeeds in that supporting role. We're in John 3 this morning. Uh, we'll start at verse 22, and actually we'll go through the end of the chapter to verse 35. We'll take this in two parts, but you remember John 3 up to this point has been that night conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus, and he talked about being born again and the Spirit blowing where it would and the necessity of coming to Christ for salvation. Verse 22, it's an entire change of scene. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John was also baptizing in Enon near Salem because there was much water there and they were coming and were being baptized. John had not yet been thrown into prison. There arose therefore a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have borne witness, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from above, from heaven. Before we get into this text specifically, let me just clarify or set the stage here a little bit. Remember, John the Baptist baptized. John was the baptizer. So he'd been preaching in Israel and calling people to a baptism in which they identified with his message about repentance from sin and being prepared for the kingdom of heaven. There's not much in the Gospels, there's only one other passage that I'm aware of that talks about Jesus or his disciples baptizing. But apparently, at least here in a limited role, not Jesus specifically, another text says, but Jesus' disciples were baptizing those, and probably like John, they were calling them, as Jesus' early preaching did, to repentance and preparation for God's kingdom. So we assume that's what's taking place. Somehow, in light of that, John's disciples see this, and in seeing it, they have a conversation with an unnamed Jew about baptism and purification. Um, baptism, you know, you would be immersed in the water, you're identifying with someone. Uh, purification in the Jewish uh, uh, law 
if you remember, there were all kinds of things that could make you ceremonially unclean. And so part of the purification oftentimes involved bathing your skin. And in fact, uh, many Jewish households, I think the term is bikvah, but I'm probably getting that wrong, had essentially uh, what would be to us a large bathtub. They would have steps that would come down in their home into a recessed area that they would keep filled with water. And it was in that setting that they would go through a ritual purification. So anyway, John's disciples see Jesus' disciples baptizing. They get in a conversation about baptism and purification. And when the dust settles out on all of this, they come back to John with what I infer is a gripe. Now, we can read the words literally, but we, I'm kind of inferring motive and what the attitude is behind here. But they come back to say, basically, Master, that guy you were talking about before, well, everyone's coming to him now instead of you. Your followers are going to someone else. I think they're concerned about this. He's baptizing and all are coming to him. I assume it's a complaint. It's not just a piece of fact. It's a complaint. Now, on one hand, um, you've got to love these guys, John's followers. You know? You've got to love them. They're concerned for John. They're loyal followers. And they're concerned with his public standing, John's piece of the pie, so to speak. And so they come to him to tell them that he's losing his crowd to this upstart from Galilee. And, you know, if we all have friends like this, we'd be doing well. These faithful, loyal friends. May we all have John's kinds of friends. Part of their problem, though, of course, was that they did not understand who Jesus was or, or what specifically John's role was. Now, they knew he bore him witness, but I don't think they were aware of where this thing was going. Listen to John's response. They're concerned. They express it to him. And he says in verse 27, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. If John didn't say anything more, this would be enough. And what a window into his soul and his motive and his character this very phrase is. So to the invitation to complain about being overlooked or about being relegated to backseat status, John doesn't concede even for a moment. And the reason is, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given from heaven. That is, John recognizes that God is in control. God is ruling the events in heaven and on earth. John's response to them is, God is still in control here. So Jesus, specifically here, he can't receive anything unless it was given to him. He's not grasping anything. He's receiving what heaven has given. Uh, This is good stuff, and this is something I thought about taking only this uh, passage today, but we're going to continue through the end. Um, This verse can be incredibly freeing uh, to us if we think about it long enough. Which one of us has not been tempted to envy or bitterness or, or, or hateful scorn or something because someone else was getting something and we weren't. And to this kind of broadly painted scenario, John's response is, you know what? If they're getting something, it's because heaven has given it. Heaven has given it. Therefore, I have no complaint. I'm not God. God has given it. <clears throat> Later on in John 19, Jesus is going to say the same thing when he's addressed by Pilate, in John 19:10, Pilate says, Do you not know that I have authority to release you, and I have authority to crucify you, authority and or power? 
To which Jesus says, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Jesus says to Pilate, the only authority you have, you have because heaven granted it. In fact, later in Romans 13, Paul will follow the same theme when he talks about governments. And I do think it's important to remember, Paul is writing about the Caesars and specifically Nero. When he writes this, let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Same thought. Is this person, is this politician in power? They're in power because God has granted it. Or is this person receiving public acclaim or fame or wealth or recognition? They're not doing it apart from heaven granting it. So John says to his disciples, guys, it's okay. Because if Jesus is developing, is getting these followers, let's just forget for the moment that he's the Messiah, which we'll follow up on here. If, he ha- if he's displacing me in this public realm, it's okay because God's behind it. God's behind it, and I'm not complaining against God or against heaven or the way he's doing things. John knows that God is sovereignly ruling over all things, and as God's servant, he's at peace with that. So his attitude is a trust in God's overarching control, and therefore he's at peace. Because of this, he can set aside temptations to envy or jealousy. Probably no one else in here uh, ever struggles with envy or jealousy. Um, But, you know, living selflessly, this is easy, and we could pass over this verse in very short order. This is far easier to talk about than to do. Far easier to talk about than to do. And there's one sense in which the things we're talking about today are negative, uh, a negative in that we let go of something, we, we turn away from something. Um, but the fact is we do so so that we can be free and really can be blessed. So this gets back to very basic themes like Jesus says, if you really want to live, then you really must die first. You know, if you want to go up, you must go down. It, it does get back to this basic spiritual reality. The beauty of this for us is when we do it, we do get life and we get joy and we get peace. See, John's disciples, they're kind of frustrated. They're stirred up, but John isn't because he gets it. He gets it. And so for you and I, when you see that less deserving person than you, given that raise or they buy the, the, better, the bigger house, or the newer car, or they take the better vacation, whatever it is, and you feel that temptation to envy or jealousy or talking them down so you'll feel better. Say with John, they can't receive anything that God hasn't given. And if God's given it, who am I to complain? Who am I to complain? This applies to all kinds of things. I confess I'm tempted semi-regularly Lord, I just don't feel important enough, or my business isn't good enough, or, you know, one thing and another. This verse has come to mind repeatedly. A man can receive nothing unless God has given it. You could make this your mantra, so to speak, for the month of March or April or whatever. But that thought that, Lord, if someone else is being blessed, it's at your hand. And how can I complain about what you are doing? Remember that God isn't just just, he's better than just. He isn't just fair, he's better than fair. He's benevolent over the top with his goodness to us. And you remember we said because we focused on Christ's gift to the world in his death and resurrection, 
that if God didn't spare his son, if he's lavished on us his most expensive treasure, then why would he withhold anything else that would benefit us? He wouldn't. It would be illogical, at least. So if he's given us Christ, he's not going to withhold anything that's good for us. So that if we see him blessing someone else, we don't need to feel bad because he's equally disposed to bless us. It may look different. It may feel different. But God, who knows all things and knows us inside out, knows what is in our best interest. And sometimes I'm convinced the reason that God does not bless us in the way he is others is because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him, that he's the thing in the end, not the blessings. Um, do you remember uh, the story in Matthew? I think it's 20. Uh, Jesus tells a story, and in the story, this master, this landowner, goes out to the city square. He goes out in the morning, and there's these guys hanging out. And they need work. They're in the place. It's the unemployment line, and they need work for the day. And so they're hanging out waiting for someone to come along. And so this landowner comes, and he hires them. And he says, go work in my vineyard for the day, and I'll pay you a denarius, the, the day's wage. That was typical. So they say, hey, great, we're good to go. And they do. And then if you remember, the landowner comes back through the day, succeeding hours, and hires more people. So that by the end of the day, some guys have worked in the field all day, and some have worked there just maybe a couple of hours. So the day's over, the work day's over, they're going to get their pay. The landowner lines them up from the last to the first, and he pays the last a denarius, the whole day's wage. So that when the guys who've worked all day in the hot sun come up to get their pay, they're expecting more now. Because he gave those lowlifes that came in at the end of the day a full day's wage, surely he's going to do better than that for us. But he pays them the same. And they complain. To which he says, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? This is exactly what we agreed to. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? You see, the, the landowner was not being unjust, unkind, uncaring, nothing along that line. He chose to be generous in a way he did not have to to these guys who came last, but he was in no way unfair to the first. And sometimes we feel like the first. Lord, yeah, you're, you're doing right by me, but you're doing better by someone else, and I don't like it. <laughs> Jesus pointed, don't be envious because God is generous or because he chooses to be generous to someone else. We can live with this. If, God, if someone's being blessed, heaven is blessing. If someone is being elevated, heaven is elevating. And if heaven is God my Father who loves me, who gave his son for me, then I, I should be okay with this. I can trust my dad. He's done more than right by me, so I don't have to worry about it. The first lesson from this passage that John displays for us in adjusting to the life or circumstances God places us in is to remember God is in control. And not just God, an impersonal force, but a, a benevolent, loving Father who's given his Son, his chief treasure for us, so that we can trust him if others are being blessed in a way we aren't. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Just this thought, just this phrase, this one verse, this should free us 
if we think about it, chew it up, mull it over, this should free us from all kinds of temptations to sin, to envy, to jealousy, to bitterness, to talking someone else down. God's in control. God's blessing that person. God's a good God, and you know what? That's what he does. And he's blessed me. And the truth is, Paul will say later, later, both in Romans and 2 Corinthians, that in this earth, in this time that we have on the earth, we go through periods or seasons of suffering. But when we get to heaven, we will think that the distance between our suffering and the glory or the blessing God gives us is so vast that whatever suffering we felt like we endured here, it would be nothing. It would lose any significance when we see how God blesses us in eternity. And it's that kind of thinking we need to entertain when we see God blessing that less deserving person than us. It's okay. God has granted it. A benevolent and loving father has given it, and he's that kind of a God, and he's my dad. I can be at peace with that. So a man can receive nothing unless it's been given from heaven. John doesn't stop there. His reason for having no problem with Jesus drawing the crowds goes on. Verse 28, You yourselves, he says to his followers, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. And so this joy of mine has been made full. John says, hey, Jesus is the bridegroom, and I'm his good friend, and I'm thrilled. I'm rejoicing with my friend. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. That's Jesus. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. That's John. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he bears witness, and no man receives his witness. He who has received his witness has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The second example John gives us in this passage related to accommodating ourselves to the role God's given us or the life he's given us is this. He knows what his role is and what his role is not. He knows who he is and he knows who he is not. And most important, he knows who Jesus is. Now, just review for a minute John's role, who he is and what he is, his role and his calling. Uh, John is, Jesus says in Matthew 11, the most important man ever born up to that point in time. He says there's arisen no one born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. John is the greatest figure, Jesus says, in human history born up to that point. This is a pretty good role, I'd say. He's up at the top of the list. John is the voice calling in the wilderness that Isaiah, the great prince of the uh, prophets in the Old Testament, predicted 800 years earlier. John is the fulfillment of the voice in the wilderness. John is the one who's come in the spirit and power of Elijah, the great prophet, powerful prophet in Israel's history that Malachi prophesied of 400 years earlier. In fact, if you remember, it was John's birth, the announcement of John's birth that broke the 400 years of silence between heaven and earth. 
John has been the leading role or character in Israel for probably the past few years. John the Baptist is the guy who's been on the lips and on the minds of everyone in Israel because of his clear calling from God to preach and to preach repentance. He has been the leading character in Israel for the last few years. So John's was no small role. It was huge. He had top marquee billing, as it were. But he knew in the end that his was not the chief role. It was a supporting role. He was part of the supporting cast. In fact, just to review some verses from John 1, when John the Apostle was telling us about John the Baptist, he said things like, Verse 23, John was the voice in the wilderness from Isaiah, but Jesus was the word of God. Uh, In verse 7 and 8, John said that he came for a witness. He wasn't the light. He bore witness to the light, Jesus. Uh, John uh, 1.15, John said, The one who comes after me has a higher rank than I have. He's more important than me. Uh, Verse 27, he says, I'm not unworthy to tie the sandal of the one who comes after me. Verse 31, John says, I came in order that he would be shown or manifested to Israel. And then verse 34, I have seen and have borne witness that this one is the Son of God. So back in chapter 1, John the Baptist had no problem understanding who he was or what his role was. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he's glad to defer to Jesus. He's understood this is my life's calling. It's not to be the center of attention. It's to point people to someone else, to someone greater than I. In this passage in chapter 3, listen to what John says about Jesus and himself. He says, Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one appointed by God. He says, I'm just his forerunner or his herald, the one who announces him. Jesus is the bridegroom and I'm the groom's friend. Jesus' role is increasing, and therefore my role must decrease. Jesus is from heaven, and I'm from earth. Jesus has the Spirit without any limit on him and his ministry, but I'm a prophet with a limited role, and in the end, Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm happy to be called his friend. So that's John the Baptist's understanding of his role and his identity He has no problems with this. He understands who he is and who he isn't. He knew his role was a supporting role. And great as his calling was, he understood that his calling was always meant to draw attention to someone greater than himself, Jesus, God's Savior, God's Lamb, God's chosen Messiah, God's Son. That was a role John didn't aspire to. It wasn't him. It wasn't his to take. So John's at peace and he's content because he knew his role and he fulfilled it. He was at peace and he was content because he knew that Jesus was the one. There's a movie that my family's enjoyed called uh, Unstrung Heroes, and in it there's a little boy who changes his name to Franz as he seeks his identity. And his crazy uncles tell him, you're the one, you're the one to watch. You're, You're the important one, you're the one who's going places or doing things. John had that thought towards Jesus. He's the one. He's the one to watch. Uh, We were talking about an old uh, Christian gal here in Topeka. Gal. She's over 100. Anyway, um, she has said this, and it wasn't unique to her, but she said, I know there's God, and I'm not it. I know there's a God, and I'm not him. 
And that's kind of John's role here. I know there's a Messiah, and I'm not it. My role is to announce him. It's to give credence. It's to open the stage, as it were, the curtains for him, the main role. Now, certainly in a, perhaps we could say, an even lesser supporting role, we're called to be like John the Baptist, certainly. That is... In the final analysis, you and I, we're not the big fish on stage. We're not the big kahuna. We're the supporting cast. And Jesus is the main character. And like John, we're called to be martyrs, that is, witnesses to the main character in this play or movie, which is Jesus himself. So we're witnesses to a greater light. We're like binoculars that should bring Jesus into focus for someone, or microscopes that make him better known than he was before, or we're witnesses on a stand, on a, uh, a trial, a court, in a courtroom in which we declare what we know. Jesus is the one. That's the role we're called to. Um, you remember in the movie uh, Chariots of Fire, Eric Little said that God had made him fast. And when he runs, he said, when I run, I feel his pleasure. You know, and that's the appropriate thing in which a person was fulfilling their role and they were drawing pleasure from it, not because it focused attention on them, but because they were doing a thing God had made them to do. So they were honoring God in it. Um, I love to teach, and generally when I teach, not always, I feel like Eric Little, I feel God's pleasure. <clears throat> but I confess, uh, when I teach, my goal is not that someone goes out afterwards and says, Mike gave a great teaching this morning. Or Mike was on top of his game this morning. Because if that's what people took away, I would have blown what I was meant to do. Uh, my goal is that when someone goes away, they feel like God has spoken to them, not Mike. Or that they see Christ or know something about God more closely or more personally or more intimately than they did before. And if that doesn't happen, then I think at some level I failed. My goal is to teach for Christ and to teach to Christ. That is, that personally, whatever I do, I want to do for Christ. And that the goal then afterwards is that people are drawn to Christ. So when I teach, oftentimes you guys don't know this, but I see Christ sitting right here in the back of the auditorium. And I remind myself that when I teach, I'm teaching for him. And hopefully the effect of that is when we go away, we feel like we've seen him or we've heard him. That's the thing. See, all of us, we can gladly lose ourselves in the supporting roles if we know Christ is the one. There's no problem. We're not losing. We're gaining if we do that, if we can follow through on that. So John had two things in perspective that helped him be at peace with his role, with his identity. He knew that God really was in control of all things. He knew that a man could receive nothing unless heaven gave it. And because of that, he was content. And we can be content if we follow his example. The second thing he knew was that the one displacing him was meant to. He knew that Jesus was the Messiah, not him. He knew that to Jesus' leading role, he was a supporting cast member. Um, <clears throat> I hope when you hear this passage, this is a passage about Jesus. I've chosen to focus on John because I feel, felt like for myself and perhaps for many of us, the lessons 
that John exemplifies for us uh, were important. They became the important part of this passage for me. And I ask myself questions like this. Am I really able to rejoice with others when they're being blessed and I'm not? Can I rejoice with them when they're being blessed and I'm not? How do I respond when I hear that God is blessing someone else in a manner or in a time in which he is not blessing me? How do I respond? What do I think? Can we rejoice really when we're the bridesmaid again and not the bride or the friend of the bridegroom again and not the groom? Can we? Do we have that trust in God and do we have that confidence in Jesus that we're free to do that, that we're at peace with that? More important, excuse me, than the way we're interacting or kind of seeing ourselves in comparison or alongside those around us, uh, how do you see your role in relationship to Jesus? Uh, do Do you have John's estimation of his role to Jesus? So, do we see Jesus as our errand boy, for instance, that we go to when we need something? Lord, need you. I need you to do something here for me. Is, do, is that the way we see him? Uh, or do we see him as the object of our heart and the goal of our life? Uh, do we see the goal of our life as God and Jesus making us happy or comfortable? Uh, or do we see and understand that our glorious calling really is to exalt in him and to lose ourselves, as it were, in giving glory and honor to him? This sounds like a loss, but in fact, if that's our role and if that's what we're made for, then that is our joy and our peace. That is a race successfully run, to lose ourselves in him. At the end of the day, or when someone else is being blessed and we're not, can we say with John, that blessing has come from heaven? Or in light of who Jesus is, can we say, you know what, he's going to increase, and I'm going to decrease, and is that okay? Is that okay? I want to close with a story that's uh, written by a poet. He's one of, uh, he was actually considered America's first great poet. The Europeans never considered America to have a great poet before Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And uh, great guy, lots of great poetry. This is not a poem he wrote, but it is a narrative, and it's called The Courtship of Miles Standish. Are you guys familiar with this? A few nods, yeah. A great story. And uh, in this story, Miles Standish is this swarthy, stout, short man of war who, with the rest of the pilgrims, has come across in the Mayflower and established that first colony there at Plymouth. And unfortunately, here in the first year of their presence there, he's lost his wife, along with many others who died that first winter. His wife died. And he's been thinking about, about life without a wife, and he's thinking he'd like to get hitched again. And you can imagine in this corner of the world at this time, there are not many applicants for this job. But <clears throat> uh, young Priscilla has caught his eye. Priscilla is one of the other pilgrims that's in their group. And Priscilla's entire family has died also over the winter. Priscilla's alone, young gal, worthy gal, great example in all kinds of good ways. And so Miles Standish is with his young friend, John Alden. And he's telling him about, you know, life's kind of lonely and I'd like to get married again. And you know what? I'd like to marry that sweet young thing, Priscilla. Well, when he tells poor John Alden this, 
He has no idea that John Alden is in love with Priscilla. And John Alden wants to marry Priscilla. And this poor guy, his, his good friend, he lives with him. This guy who's helped take care of him, he lives with him, has just asked him to go ask sweet young Priscilla to marry Miles Standish. And poor John Alden's world is turned upside down. You can imagine his, the gears are turning and he's thinking, what do I do? What do I say? He swallows hard and he tells Miles Standish, okay, I'll go ask sweet Priscilla to, to marry you. So he does. And it doesn't go quite right. It doesn't go as well. See, Miles Standish, it's funny because he says, if you want to be served well, serve yourself. And so he sends John Alden, contrary to his own maxim, to do this thing for him. Well, John's heart isn't quite in it, of course. And even though he's the scholar and he's the kind of the wit, as it were, and he's the man of letters, and Miles Standish thinks, boy, he'll be able to speak for me, you know, on my behalf really well. It doesn't go well. And she says, I would not have Miles Standish. She says no and no on certain terms. And in fact, in the course of saying so, she says, you know, if you want to woo, do so in your own name, not his. She kind of lets the cat out of the bag. Oh, no. Now his world's more upside down than it was before because she's just told him she really prefers him. He's come on behalf of Miles Standish, and he's got to go back and tell him. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes back to Miles Standish, and of course, he wants to know, okay, how'd it go? So he tells him, in fact, he tells him to the very last statement that she said she prefers me to you. <laughs> so, Miles Standish is a hot-tempered guy, man of action and man of war. And he loves to read Julius Caesar. And he believes that his young friend John Alden is Brutus and has just stuck in the dagger into Julius Caesar. And he yells at him and screams at him, let there be nothing but implacable hatred and war between you and I from henceforth. And the days and the weeks and the months roll by. This was springtime into fall. And things are not good, obviously. Relationships are strained. Nothing's happening as far as anyone getting wed. But Miles Standish is called out one day because he's got to go confront some Indians. And word comes back after he's gone out that Miles Standish has been killed by a poisoned Indian arrow. Well, he is the chief defender of the little town, the new town of Plymouth, and this is no small loss. And really, as real friends, both John Alden and Priscilla mourn his loss on one hand and then rejoice that they feel free to do what they've wanted to do all along, which is to wed each other. So they set the date. And they stand before the magistrate and the elder to get married. And they're in the process of the wedding when open the doors fly. And who is standing there but the ghost of Miles Standish? The reality of Miles Standish. He's not dead. He's quite well and alive. And he's there in his shining armor bursting into their wedding. And you know what? Boy, what's going to happen here? Things could go poorly. To his credit, he apologizes to John Alden. He swallows hard and apologizes. In fact, he says at one point he'd rather face a hostile Indian camp than come into this wedding unbidden. It's hard for him, but he apologizes. Because in the end, he realizes John Alden was the bridegroom, not him. The marriage between Miles Standish and Priscilla was never to be. It was a role Miles Standish was not called to. John Alden was. And when Miles Standish comes to grips with that, all is at peace, 
and all is well. And the story ends happily with John Alden leading sweet Priscilla on his little bull down the lane to their new little house. But it's a happy conclusion because Miles Standish realizes now what his role is and isn't and what his identity is and isn't. He's the friend of the bridegroom. He's not the groom. And once he's adjusted to that, life is good again. And you know, John the Baptist is such an example here to us, both for saying in general, we can say this with him, no matter what happens to us or the lives of those around us, God is in control and a man can receive nothing unless God gives it. And we can be at peace with that. We can also say with him, you know what our role is? We're not the bridegroom, and, and I'm kind of leaving aside for this morning's discussion. We are the bride as the church, members of the bride of Christ, but Christ is the key role. Like John, if we're orienting ourselves to life, we can say he's the bridegroom, we're the friend. That is, his is the starring role. We're part of the supporting cast, and we should be good to go with that. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for the example that John is um, and his great response to his disciples' concern that he was being displaced by another. Thanks, Father, that he knew that it was heaven that blessed and bestowed authority or honor or success. Help us share that same thought and that same example. And Lord, when you're blessing others around us, as you're bound to do because you're a benevolent, giving, and loving God, help us to rejoice with you and for them. Lord, also like John the Baptist, help us to understand that ours is a supporting role. Father, sometimes like a spoiled child who always needs the attention, that's what we do. Or worse, a spoiled adult who's always got to be the center of attention. Help us to reject that as, as unworthy of those who've been called as your sons and your daughters. Help us to rejoice in revealing you to others. Help us to rejoice in honoring and worshiping you. Help us to understand who we are and who we are not, what we are called to and what we are not called to. And Lord, there is a a happy freedom, liberty, and joy in, in with John diminishing, so to speak, because we gain you. And help us to be a faithful witness as he was to others that if they get to know us, Lord, for any length of time, let them know who we belong to. Help us to be faithful witnesses to Jesus, that he's the main character. He's the focus of our life. He's the leading man, Lord. Help us to revel, to rejoice in him. In his name we pray, amen.